Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and today on the Debunking Economics podcast, can you apply the free market way of doing things to public goods? It seems there's been a relentless desire to try and just do that, make public goods work in the same way as products and services delivered for a profit in a competitive landscape. But can you do that with things like health and education? Well, lots of governments are trying. And what about things that are not directly consumed, like defence or research? Professor Steve Keen knows all about this because he works in the education sector whilst trying to do research. So how do you apply free market principles like pricing to something as nebulous as research, for example. Uh, Let's start, Steve, with a definition of a public good, first of all. A definition I've got is that it's something that's available to everybody, presumably, and something we don't pay for directly. We all chip in to the kitty, uh, which which we may or may not uh, take out of. Yeah, well, it's things like, I mean, education. It's, it's also the main thing about a public good is it's something which benefits more than the person who, who consumes it, I wouldn't say buys it. Um, so if you have education uh, in, in general, then even somebody who uh, gets no education whatsoever uh, can benefit from what the product of the education is. If that education leads to improving the quality of, of rail services, we have better engineers who, for example, realise that, hey, every autumn there are leaves on the rail. Maybe we should design an engineering system to get rid of the leaves. That'd be good. Uh, obviously, that hasn't happened in England. It's, it's never going to uh, happen. Never going to happen. No, You're living in a fantasy it's, land if you believe we're not going to have that sorry. announcement saying trains okay, cancelled because yeah. the leaves on the line. Just with this is a slight diversion. I saw a video, I don't know if you've seen it, it's gone viral of these people yeah. uh, in Canada or somewhere standing on a train platform with a piled high with snow and a train with a snow plow comes through and completely engulfs everyone on the platform <laughs> in snow. So they can, they can get trains through when the snow is piled up to the platform, but leaves on the line in autumn in Britain. We'll no. stop London trains. I know that's it. the people who don't live in London, it's one of the little idiosyncrasies of the place which just leave me speechless. So, uh, but, so yeah, so research yeah, is yeah. never, research theoretically should be able to solve problems like that. So yeah, that's another if, example if, of a public good. That's right. If you, if you, if you, if, you, if you, the person who is the purchaser or the person who experiences whatever we're talking about is not the only beneficiary. And then that's an argument to say, well, if you actually relieve it to the marketplace, even if you accept of course, which I'm critical of, the notion that the market will always choose the right quantity for everything. That's one case where that theory clearly uh, has a a breakdown that people who promote it have to accept, and that is that if you rely upon just the benefit for the individual uh, in in consuming that good by through a market mechanism, you'll get less of it produced than the society actually needs. So how do we, in that case, make sure that resources are being efficiently allocated? Uh, Because we've got Donald Donald Trump, for example, he's proposing a massive increase in defence or or, mm-hmm. or offence, uh, it's probably a better word, uh, and uh, massive cuts in, in environmental protection. Uh, look, it, it's a purely arbitrary decision, isn't it? That's, no- a, that's the problem. We've, we, we, we're in a rock and a hard place in some ways because we have 
uh, if you if you leave these things to the market, the, even the theorists who are total advocates of the market everywhere will have to say, yes, okay, in that area there'll be less than we need, so we need to have some sort of public intervention. But on the other side, uh, particularly given the state of politics today, if you have people uh, deciding in, in the in, you know, on the basically their ideology rather than any logic what they should do, then you can have these services suddenly slash and burned. Uh, or dramatically expanded in the case of you said uh, the the Department of Defense under under uh, President Trump. So it is we are, we really have in some ways the worst of the of both worlds because there's been such an ideology in favour of market provision of virtually everything that many services which qualify on that front of being something where the individual consumer is not the only beneficiary and therefore the market will underprovide. Lots and lots of those services have been marketized. Uh, with with you know, pretty pretty bad results, uh, a lot of the time. And then on the other side, we have um, uh, arbitrary political decisions influencing what happens in the areas where we still have things that are treated as public goods in general, such as defence. But I mean, you could argue that that is an allocation that is determined by the by the people who are the beneficiaries. So we we are benefiting from defence. If uh, if people voted for Donald Trump and it was known that's how he was going to spend his money, then it's oh, a, cho- a choice you made see, by you people. Said, you said the word known and Donald Trump in the one sentence. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, maybe we didn't know. Well, we, well, we did sort of know what he was going to do. And look, you know, he. I mean, we can look at the failings of the uh, of the political system, and we could spend hours on that. But in mm. in theory. You, you elect a president based on yeah. a manifesto, uh, and in that manifesto, he's going to indicate how he's going to spend money for the public goods. So people, yeah, but, but people the, are, the point is people yeah, are making we, we, a supposed rational decision on that. In the, yeah, yeah, but let's not get too caught up in how the political system reflects political preferences. But the, the, the main point is that there should be some sort of systematic way to decide what products do we allow to be completely market driven and which ones do we allow some market uh, market intervention in and then when it comes to major issues where we know the market can't provide uh, with what do you do about state provision? Which ones do you decide should be state provided? Which ones don't you provide? Some sort of sensibility to it. And at the moment, I'm afraid we've got neither and either. So how do we do that? I mean, that's the obvious yeah. question. Well, let's, go, let's come back to the public good thing because the classic uh, public good in that sense is education. If yep. you have uh, education, meaning that people get trained in, in skills which can then be applied uh, to the benefit of the rest of society, uh, so that, you know, gamble the classic illustration of getting engineers who know to get leaves off rails, um, then the beneficiaries go well beyond the people who become the engineers. And, there, and there's a strong argument there that, well, in that case, the market will underprovide, so we have to have some contribution at an aggregate level as best as we can do it, which is through the political system and then through government spending. Uh, so that's, that's one side of the coin. And uh, let's, let's focus on that one, one side um, in this particular podcast, because what we've had, of course, in, say, in the education department is the cost of providing an education, which used to be entirely state-based, if you go back 30 or 40 years, uh, in certainly, say, in, in the UK and in Australia and uh, to some extent America. Uh, the, America hasn't changed all that much because it still had a strong market basis to it. But England and Australia have gone down the, the road of completely converting from seeing those as public goods to private goods. And now in England, of course, university entrants face uh, 9,000 quid a year to get their degree over three years. Yeah. And they're paying in virtually entire cost of, of the education. And that's got two problems, as far as I can see. One, well... One, we can actually have over-provision on that front. It isn't a market mechanism anymore. It's a panic mechanism. People think they've got to have a degree to get a job, so therefore they go in and we probably get more people doing it than we actually need. Um, but s- secondly, 
the, uh, the, the, the attempt to create a marketplace where one doesn't actually exist leads to all sorts of insanities in that area. And in my particular case, of course, I've had enough of the insanities. I'm going to be trying to leave the uh, university sector completely. Right. So why is it why is it not working though? Let's explore that a little bit further because because mm. because I because uh, I want to get an education. Mm. There's a, a university says yes. Uh, well, it's going to cost so much to get that education at this university. Someone else is saying, well, we're a little bit cheaper, and somebody else might be a bit more expensive. And I say, well, okay, I'm going to go to wherever's going to give me the best results based on the price I'm prepared to pay. I mean, that's the, which that's, does not happen one little bit. This is the first uh, problem about treating education as an artificial market because. Uh, just like if you want to go and pick up a girlfriend and you drive along in a, the cheapest car you can buy versus the most expensive, um, let's be a bit materialistic here. Which one's going to win you get you more more uh, more success at the ladies? It's going to be the latter. Right. Uh, so it's just, it's just education so, signaling. So it's shallow women though. It only get shallow women. You get women of substance if you turn up in the uh, in, in the in the, the cheaper car and uh, you've only got your charisma and, and to go I'm, on. And I'm sure you'll take that risk. <laughs> okay. Uh, now there's there's the first issue. You have a market which is treated as a. The, the trouble is what we're doing in in making these sorts of political decisions is applying the little uh, economics 101 intersecting supply and demand curve analysis to literally everything. And there are classic cases. First of all, that logic is utterly fallacious, as we've covered in other blog posts and we'll cover in the future in more detail. Um, But secondly, it doesn't apply to things which are effectively status goods or existence goods. So, for example, if you get a, if a heart attack, you don't go to the cheapest doctor. You go to the doctor that's likely to make let you live, so far as you as far as you can tell. Uh, and the other thing about these products is you want you don't consume lots of them. You know, if you, you you don't go to thirty five heart surgeons in your lifetime. If you do, you've had a pretty pretty dreadful life. Mm. Um, you go once, ditto for education. You get one undergraduate degree. And therefore, you've never consumed the product beforehand. And one essential thing about a market actually working is informed consumers. Uh, as best uh, you, you know, you, you information on on which you base your decision is partially your past experience having consumed that same product by different producers. And so you learn what you want, what you regard as your particular taste set. If you're talking you know, alcohols, you you know which one you want to. When you prefer wine to beer, if you're talking. Uh, mueslis, you know which one you you prefer. The, you know, the, in every case, with multiple consumption and repetition, uh, gives you information, even if you have a distorted marketplace in terms of advertising and so on. There's there's a, there's a way in which the consumer knows what they're buying. Yeah. Now, if you try to do that to education or health, you have no idea what you're buying. Well, yeah, yeah. And health, therefore, the whole idea, yeah, is just not there. Health is an interesting one, isn't it? Because in because in fact, you know, if you have a totally free market principle, then the the best um, occupation might be to be a, a surgeon. You might get a better return being a surgeon than being anything else. Whereas, in fact, we might need more GPs because there might be a lot of old ladies who who have simple, lower level symptoms that, uh, or, or older men. Let's not be sexist. Uh, mm-hmm. That need health uh, that a, a GP can provide, but the free market might not supply enough GPs to cater for that demand or enough. Uh, uh, health workers in, in a particular sector, so that's so that's an example where the, uh, the you know the I guess the free market's not going to work because people are always going to take the best paid salary, which is like your analogy of uh, driving the best car to get a girlfriend, I guess. Yeah, and this this is one of the problems that you you don't want to have the market mechanism applying there because then one of the ideas about the market mechanism, whether it appeals to people so much, is that it's it's uh, regarded as being uh, relatively anonymous. So if you if you King uh, Charles turning up, then you're the same as Charlie turning up to um, 
to get service and secondly that it eliminates power because there's so many providers of each of the services that there's dispersal of power and therefore one side can't exploit the other that simply does not apply when you're talking about a life life-threatening situation you uh, you are not going to have lots and lots of heart surgeons who are regarded the same quality there'll be dramatic variations there and if you allow the the top ones to, to price then you literally get you know effectively price gouging and so there are strong arguments to say look uh, we, we want to make sure you get a decent income and this is actually one area in which both of the nhs is completely failing it's it's medical staff they're paid appallingly here compared to what they can earn in the rest of the world. Um, but the, the principle of letting it go to the market just doesn't work because you don't have the anonymity, you don't have the repeat purchase, you don't have the informed consumer, and you do have the capacity, if you leave it totally market-based, to gouge uh, the, the buyer because they're desperate. They'll give their entire life savings, as with, of course, which has been the situation that's given America such an appalling health system. Mm, an appalling health system would cost twice as much or three times as much as the UK one, absolutely. Much, but, much more than that. Can can, can a public good have competition? In fact, does it work better if it has competition? For example, uh, is uh, the presence of private health making the NHS work better, or does private education improve public education? Uh, that, that's, there are some times when that can be true. One of my favourite people in, um, in non-orthodox economics, actually in terms of implementing it rather than simply just talking about it, was a guy called Hugh Stretton, who was the, uh, uh, was the director of the... Uh, uh, low-income housing program in South Australia and quite a noted Australian uh, intellectual. And Hugh was uh, w- one time in one of his uh, after-work meetings, he's, some of his staff got rather bolshy and one of them said, essentially, there should only be public housing, not private. And Hugh just gently replied, no, we need them to keep us efficient and they need us to keep them honest. Yeah. And so there is a yin and yang potential balance there. So I'm not completely opposed to, for example, private education as a part of in a public system. I think it does have a role. But when you look, try to entirely mould the public system on the basis of it making it model a private system, then you get all sorts of crazy distortions happening. Because, again, in this market, there is certainly for, high, for people entering from high school into university, they have nothing like, like the capacity to be informed consumers. So what you get is the government, they say, well, let's actually make up some of the information. So we create all these scales and things like that so that students can rank the university on, you know, uh, staff-student ratios and uh, and uh, student feedback and national student surveys, et cetera, et cetera. But all this stuff, the, the system then distorts to try to get the maximum scores yeah. on all that information. And it is completely unreliable uh, at the at a de- level of detail where the students actually turn up because you don't do it. When you go to university, you don't do a degree in Cambridge. You do a degree in ornithology in Cambridge. And you may well find that Cambridge's overall reputation for being brilliant at everything doesn't apply in the ornithology department. Mm. It doesn't apply in the economics one. I can certainly say that without... Uh, well, I can annoy some people, and I'm quite happy to annoy them. Really? Uh, so you, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I know that's not like my personality. Of course, no, I'm really yeah. surprised by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's 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 the issue that the the students are buying at a much tighter level of detail than can actually be communicated in the artificial market signals that have been generated to try to make this place work like a market, and and therefore you get the. Uh, you know, that's one reason why I've had enough of the university system because guaranteed i'm going to be rated as a bronze educator under the under the, the, the tertiary what's called the tef the uh tertiary edu- teaching excellence framework tef uh the next three lyracum coming our way in england yeah. uh, will rank entire universities as gold silver or bronze teaching institutions 
Now, how are they going to go about doing that? Well, simple. They're going to put university can put as much money as they can to ticking the right boxes to be scored by a bunch of visiting bureaucrats and regulators as gold level rather than silver or bronze. Uh, my university, which is down the bottom end of the pecking order, is on a hiding to nothing to cop the bronze level, just because of its ranking system overall. Um, and in that basis, I'm going to be read as a bronze educator. I'm simply not going to put up with that. Yeah. So that that is one of the cases where it's just become just so absurd. These trying to generate artificial market signals to generate what is missing in this non-market that you've turned into one. <laughs> right. And, but you can understand. Is, well, understand. I'm not saying it's right. But you can understand the temptation to do that because obviously the benefits from uh, from public goods are less direct than private goods. So if I go and buy a TV, I can I can watch it. It might take me a day or two to discover there's nothing actually yeah. worth watching. But I'd see an immediate benefit from having bought that TV. Education. There's a there's a personal benefit, and you know there's a there's a lot of personal benefits. Not just the education I'm receiving, but uh, you know all the other good things that come with going through school, making friends and learning how to be a member yeah. of society, all of those flow-on effects. But then there's also those effects down the track, like greater productivity from having a smarter workforce, which benefits everyone. But our short-termism, I think, we're ignoring those things, aren't we? Because it's too hard to measure. And we end up with the absurdities of artificial measures that then distort the whole the whole system. So it's it, it is a problem because you if you the one the advantage the market system has and the reason people push for it all the time is that it appears to be the most efficient way of deciding how much to allocate to different different in, in sectors of the economy. And yeah. when you're talking just goods which the benefit is overwhelmingly received by the person who's who's buying it and where there were repeat purchases occurring all the time and where they can compare what's supplied by other people then that is justified but when it's extended as far as it has been by this pro-market ideology uh, in so many parties around the world it ends up with you applying it where it simply doesn't work so if you want to get a, a rail journey from here to brighton why why not go by the northern line and see what they offer as a price for a ticket to get right. There mm. is no such possibility, of course. Therefore, you get price gouged by the one supplier who's been given a, a private monopoly out of what was a public monopoly in the first instance. And all the attempts to try to uh, get them to improve the services. I mean, I don't need to tell people listening who live in London about the calibre of the rail services here mm. versus the calibre in the, in, in the continent where they... Well, not only have they maintained public ownership, but quite frequently some of those public institutions own the own the private ones in England. But this and it, you're seeing a complete failure of the system, right? And that is because of because we've taken a public good and privatised it. But isn't part of the problem? I mean, economists have got a lot to answer for here, haven't they? Because economists love equations, and I've you know so these so they've got an equation for everything. So I've seen uh, MSB equals MSC. Uh, MSB is marginal social benefit equals marginal social, social cost. cost. In other words, mm. yeah, for every pound I spend on a public good, there's got to be a pound of benefit, which is sort of stating the bleeding obvious, isn't it? But it's but it's how the hell you define what is the marginal social social benefit. And the obvious way is, this. I mean, this is a monetary equation, so you, you want monetary terms to, to replace. You know what the cost is, so mm. you, want to, you want to put some sort of monetary term against the, the, the benefit. And it can't be done, can it? Isn't that the fundamental issue here? It's one of the one. It's one of the fundamental issues. The other major one, which I, I focus upon more than that one, is is that you want to have these things developed over time. You want to have uh, Im improving capabilities over time. 
Uh, and when you hand over something which is a public good and which gives you a, a monopoly on a particular area, think about people travelling from Brighton to London each day, and there's only one rail service going down there. Uh, there is, because the, the potential alternative ways of getting from Brighton to London are so difficult, they have a monopoly in transportation from the two, and the advantage to the to the managers is a short-termism, return as much profit as you can to your shareholders and get out before problems cause a change in the system. Mm. And you get, a, you get a, basically you neglect maintenance, that's why there are still leaves on the rail. Uh, you, you don't bother doing things which are obvious uh, to reduce costs. Therefore, over time, it can actually be far more expensive and less effective. And if you compare the cost to the consumer and the cost to the state of rail transport systems around the world, then where they're publicly owned, they tend to be better quality and cheaper. Now, that is not what's supposed to happen out of a market system, but because it's ignoring this issue of long-lived assets and the capacity to exploit them in a, with a short-term perspective. And when that exists, that's one of the, the warning signs to say you should not privatise this. Yeah, but even if it was in, in public hands, uh, you'd still have that issue of congestion, wouldn't you? And that's, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and, and, and isn't part of the issue uh, that we often don't notice that congestion occurring. So you, you get congestible public goods like roads and education is another example of you know you we get too many people cramming into uh, too few places but if we're not tracking or measuring just how bad things are getting because Uh we're measuring the wrong thing isn't i mean isn't that part of the problem with the health system for example and the education system we don't measure quality in the right way so we don't realize how bad things are getting well, partly this is because some things can't be measured, and that's one of the things, again, like with the research, again, in the, being an academic, the measurement of research is distorting what is actually produced as research. Um, so there are some issues that you simply say, look, this is just, let's not try to get a simple metric for this. Let's accept that the uh, there are some things which are unmeasurable and and work at a, at a more social level. And the trouble, of course, with as well as having this market obsession at one extreme where you try to marketise non-marketable uh, products like transportation, education and health, at the other extreme, you have a state believing that it has to balance its books and therefore, uh, because it has an excess of spending over taxation, it must reduce spending in these areas every year. And that is equally, I think we're good enough to discuss in yet more detail in yet another podcast, but that is equally wrong. That is, that is completely distorting the role of the vision of what the state can do and should do. So we have a combination of marketise what sh- marketising what shouldn't be marketised, partly to reduce what's turning up on the, on the government books, in fact. It's, it's driven by the other area of thinking. And then with the state level, believing that the government should always uh, tax more than it spends, which is an impossible ambition, chasing that impossible ambition means you push more stuff into being marketised. Mm. So we've got ourselves caught in very, very sick set of ideologies here. And you marketise, of course, what's only a very small part of the bigger picture. So the issue about how do you fix the issue with Southern Rail, apart from, you know, maybe they are an inefficient operation, but the, the real issue is there are too many people cramming onto trains to try and get into London every day because the economy is too centralised in London. So how do you fix the problem with Southern Rail? You get more people to to, to uh, apply for jobs up north. And you need to have the transportation systems to do that, which comes back to the whole issue again. Well, so we, it's not really just transportation. Got you've got to have uh, no. some sort of incentive for businesses. You've got to have the education levels. You've got to have all the supporting industries and infrastructure. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big job, but it solves the Southern Rail problem. And the fundamental issue with Southern Rail is there are too many people trying to get into London. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's the, this is one of the issues, again, about um, 
how inappropriate our vision is of the economy for the society in which we live because, again, that economic vision tends to be dominated by you know, national aggregates, GDP, et cetera, et cetera, rather than spatially understanding the economy as well. And that's why we have uh, the south of England doing extremely well and uh, and thinking everything's fantastic with the current system and Mid Midlands being totally disenfranchised and 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 debilitated. And there we have, uh, you know, the, 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 again, the vision we have simplifies a complex system far yep. too much. Yeah. So there might, might be in terms of solutions to all this, I'd want to have uh, a sensible decision-making of what, what products can be treated as a private versus which ones simply should not, and education and health and transportation to a large degree fall into the should not category. Uh, and then also saying, well, the state should be expanding this, as the actually state should normally be running a deficit, and if it runs a deficit and generates money creation as well at the same time, which the rest of us spend in the private sector, it can also fund the infrastructure investment that it's been ignoring in these areas for the last 40 years. Right. So the first point in all of that is to say this applying free market principles, this marketization of public goods is a mistake in many cases, and we need to rethink that. And you might think that that's a big move for, for a government to make, but I would have thought in the current environment where everyone's looking at the NHS and saying this seems to be going from bad to worse – this is the perfect political environment for a government to come along and say, well, actually, uh, this whole marketization has gone too far. We need to change it. But then you have to have a government which is well says that it's OK to run a deficit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. We've got those two issues together. You know, the, the, those, those have got us locked in an ideological trap. And that's one reason I was quite pleased to see Trudeau get elected in Canada, because uh, one of the things he said in the lead up to it was, I'm going to run a deficit. What's wrong with about a 3% deficit at the moment? No problem. And people, the, the political class and the journalist class, which has swallowed this whole idea about the government should uh, should tax more than it spends, uh, was horrified by this and was basically predicting that's the end of Trudeau and the electorate, which has had 40 years of this, as, as well as swallowing the ideology to some extent, they've also unfortunately swallowed the bitter pill of experience and some of them are realising that you know, this maybe this might be a false fixation and they voted for Trudeau in large numbers. Right. So there's a possibility for a shift occurring, but it is going to take a mental shift as well and not just amongst our um, electoral class, but also amongst the electorate itself. Right. Well, there we are. Steve, can we write a couple more books then? Steve Keane for Prime Minister. We've got that sorted out. The rest of your life figured out for you there, Steve. Uh, we'll, we'll catch you again I'm soon. I'm leaving the... I think I'll go to Mars. <laughs> You'd rather do that. All right. That's fair enough. I'd rather do that. Talk to you soon. Okay. And I'm sure those of you who are listening at the moment will have your own examples of how attempts for public services to deliver what they're intended to do is being uh, distorted by attempts to apply measures based on market principles. Leave a comment uh, if you've got some good ones or, or tweet about it. Uh, that's it for this time. Thanks for listening. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll be back again soon with another Debunking Economics podcast. See you then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.